Mark chapter number 12. We're going to look down through verse number from 35 um, all the way down. I'm sorry, where am I at? I have no idea where I'm at. 35. 35 all the way down through 44. There I am. Okay. All right. 35 through 44. Uh, we'll read all of these verses a little lengthy. I'll, I'm going to read it quickly because um, I want to get into the message here. Um, and uh, we'll be examining all of these as we go th down through this passage. Mark 12, 35 through 44 says this, Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? Common people heard him gladly. Verse 38 says, And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. And let's pray together one more time. Lord, thank you for the time together this morning. And now we turn our focus um, and attention towards your word. Pray, Lord, you remove distractions from our minds and help us, Lord, to zero in on what you have for us today. I pray, Lord, uh, you would help me to uh, preach with clarity and and uh, with um, with liberty, and, and I ask that you would uh, help us to take heed to the truth found within this passage. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to start the message this morning by saying that I appreciate teachers, more so now that I'm an adult, as today is Teacher Appreciation Sunday. And I recognize that I didn't get to this point on my own, uh, that it was the investment of many others who shaped me into the person that I am today. I was thinking about how many teachers that I've had in my life, and I started to count them up. And uh, I lost track, but uh, while I don't remember each one by name, I believe that I've had well over 100 people who've had the title of teacher that has taught me in one shape way, shape, or form. Now, some stick out more than others. I actually still remember all of the names of my elementary school teachers. I had Mrs. Albertson for kindergarten. I had Mrs. Triscuit for first grade. I remember that she even came to my house to visit me just because she loved me. And uh, Mrs. Wilson, she was my second grade teacher, and uh, she absolutely loved us. And we loved her, too, a lot. And actually, I ran into her while I was in Bible college and found out that she was a Christian. And it really didn't surprise me uh, because she was constantly showing the love of Christ to us as second graders. And we were in a public school at that time. 
I went to Linda Verde Elementary School in Lancaster, California. We were the Linda Verde Lions. And uh, our colors, this is going to make you probably want to throw up in your mouth, but it was green and gold. See? <laughs> Packers colors. So sorry about that. Sorry to give you all indigestion and nausea so early in the day, but anyway, Mrs. Wilson was such a blessing. Uh, my third grade teacher, his name was Mr. Sweeney, and uh, yeah, we gave him a hard time for that last name, but uh, not only did he have a funny name, but he also told us a lot of funny stories, and we really did uh, love and appreciate him too. Mrs. Neal was my fourth grade teacher, and uh, our team name during the school competition was Mrs. Neal's Banana Peels. That was our, that was our team name. Mrs. Shepard was my fifth grade teacher, and that was a really difficult year for me. Uh, but, and to be honest, she wasn't my favorite teacher. I'll just be honest with you right now. But, but I do know she cared about me, and I think she was just a year or so away from retirement, and, and it kind of showed. She was kind of like wanting to check out. But um, anyway, I do remember Mrs. Shepard. And then my sixth grade teacher, I had, uh, had first-year teacher Mrs. O'Connell. And uh, she loved us and, and taught us with great passion, even though many in the class didn't really appreciate it. And then during my junior high, high school, one year of junior college and four years of Bible college, I've had mean teachers, I've had funny teachers, I've had hard teachers, I've had easy teachers, I've had strict teachers, boring teachers, exciting teachers, passionate teachers, loving teachers, and inspiring teachers, and I'm thankful for each and every one of them because I know that I am who I am in part because of their investment in my life. Now, for those of you who are teachers today, again, whether you're public school teacher, Christian school teacher, uh, Sunday school teacher, homeschool teacher, I want you to know that you're in extremely good company because you see my mom was a teacher. She was one of those rare breeds that enjoyed teaching the crazy junior high age with their hormones raging and their bodies changing and their voices changing and all of those things. She loved it, and it was like a head-scratcher. Why do you love this age? Uh, they're kind of the, you know, you think the terrible twos are hard. I mean, the, uh, the, the preteens are really difficult. But she absolutely loved teaching, and uh, one of the, the two subjects she was most passionate about was history and Spanish, and she taught those, those grades. And she really put her all into it. I mean, it wasn't just a job to her. It was really her passion. Uh, but as we also think about those in the Bible who are called teacher, uh, we think of uh, the Apostle Paul. See, Paul was a teacher. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 7, it says, "...whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle." I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So the great apostle Paul had the title of teacher. But then we come here to the master teacher himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh, but he was also called a teacher. John chapter number 3 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now Nicodemus was right. Jesus was a teacher, but not just any teacher. He was and is the master teacher. 
And here in our text in Mark chapter number 12, as we wrap up this chapter, uh, we're going to find Jesus doing what Jesus did so well, and that was teaching. In verse number 35, we find him teaching in the temple. Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple. And so here we find Jesus as the master teacher. And as we make our way through this passage, we're going to look at three powerful lessons that the master teacher taught in this passage. Now, hopefully all of us are going to be good students today. And I realize it's Sunday and some of you teenagers are like, hey, it's Sunday. I'm not supposed to be a student. Now, we're all to be students, especially of the master teacher himself. And so hopefully we'll all be good students today and learn these lessons. What are these lessons? Well, first we're going to see that Jesus taught a lesson about the truth about the Messiah, the truth about the Messiah. In verses 35 through 37, these three verses here, Jesus uh, was bringing up something. Now, as we've kind of made our way through chapter number 12, we've seen wave after wave of conspiracy against Jesus with these uh, scribes and Pharisees and, and uh, Sadducees trying to trip Jesus up with their questions. Finally, they stopped in verse number 34. If you just look at the end of that verse, it says, And no man after that durst ask him any questions. So finally, he kind of put a stop to all the questions. I mean, he put a plug or unplugged all the questions and said, we're done with those. And now Jesus uh, is now the one asking the questions. And in, in, in verse number 35, he says, how say the scribes that, Jesus, that Christ is the son of David? Now see, the, the scribes always taught that the Messiah would eventually come from the lineage of David. And then Jesus brings them in verse 36 to Psalm 110, verse number 1. If you have a reference Bible, you may see that reference there. That, that reference, he's, what he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 110, verse number 1. For he said, David himself said by the Holy Ghost, and let me just kind of call a quick time out. You see, as David was writing these psalms, we need to remember that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he was writing. That they are the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit was uh, overseeing all of this. In, uh, I believe it's first, uh, sorry, Second Peter. Let me turn over there here. Second Peter chapter number 1, and verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so the Scriptures uh, came because men, as they wrote, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus mentions it here in Mark uh, 12, verse 36. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost. You see? It wasn't just uh, that David was writing just some kind of whim that he was having. No, he was writing under the whole inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. Um, now here Jesus the master teacher uses a wonderful teaching technique that is extremely effective, which is asking questions. Verse 35, he says, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? And then uh, he ends in verse number 37 with a question. And whence is he then his son? Um, so basically he's asking him, how can it be that the Messiah would be the son of David? And he would be David's Lord 
at the same time. How, how could that be? Um, and this was a brain-bending question for the people there in that temple that day. I mean, here's what the, Jesus, the master teacher, was getting at. See, the promised Messiah would indeed be both David's descendant and his Lord because Jesus Christ was truly from the lineage of David through Mary. But that wasn't all of it. See, he was also fully divine because of the virgin birth. He was also the son of David and the son of God both. And as the son of David, he was fully human. And as the son of God, he was fully God. And so that's how uh, when David referred to this Messiah as his son and his Lord at the same time, it's because Jesus was both. He was both from the lineage of David, but he was also the son of God because of the virgin birth. And uh, so the master teacher was actually much more than a teacher. He was and is the promised Messiah, the son of God, fully God and fully man. He was and is the son of David, but also David's Lord. So, verse 37, David therefore calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And Jesus was basically saying, yes, I am the son of David, but I also am the son of God. I am also David's Lord at the same time as his son. And so he was getting at who he, who he was as the Messiah. And notice the response to this powerful truth at the end of verse number 37. The common people heard him gladly. They were sitting there going, wow. This is good. That was, this is a brain bender. This is a, this is a brain teaser. How, like, how can this make sense? And, and that's what he was getting at. The fact that Jesus was both human and man fully. Now, we too must realize this truth. So first, Jesus, the master teacher, teaches there in the temple this vital lesson about the truth of the Messiah. And the second lesson he brings is regarding the two-faced ministers the two-faced ministers. In verses 38 through 40, these three verses, he teaches another lesson. And he warns them about two-faced ministers. Verse number 38 says, He said unto them in his doctrine, Be, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. See, here Jesus teaches the people about there in the temple and warns them in this lesson about these two-faced ministers, those who would walk around in their religious garb and loved popularity. In verse number 38, it says, they love salutations. They love to walk around and everybody to recognize them and, and to fear them and, and, and to say hello. And, and, and they love that. And they loved the, uh, the attention. Uh, they, they loved the salutations in the marketplace. And then, but they also loved the, uh, the, the prominence. They had chief seats in the synagogues. Now, there's no chief seat in here. But let's suppose that's the one, okay? This just happens to be convenient for the one who has to preach, who gets to just pop up here real quick. But let's suppose this is a... A seat of prominence. The, these scribes, they wanted to be in this seat, and, and they kind of claimed it. And it was, I, I think in most Baptist churches, the chief seats are the ones in the back. <laughs> the back row Baptists, you know. 
Those are the chief seats in a Baptist church. But back in those days, wherever those chief seats were, I mean, these scribes had to sit there so that everybody could see them, so that everybody would be looking at them. So, and I remember when, when I was on staff at a church in California, uh, our pastor for a time had all the, all the pastoral staff sitting on the, on the platform during the preaching. And I'm not opposed to that. I know that there's churches that do that, and I'm not mocking them or, or critical of them in any way. Uh, but uh, I remember one church member said, hey, why do you guys sit up there uh, during pastor's sermon? Are you guys like the platform ornaments? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm doing it because the man told me to. <laughs> because I work for him, and he signs my checks. So yes, I do it because I'm trying to be submissive. And it was tough sitting there because you couldn't yawn. You couldn't. You had to look like you're paying attention the entire time, and uh, it, was, it was rough. Okay, well, here's the deal. Uh, these guys wanted to be noticed. They wanted to uh, be up front in front of everybody. They had to be in the chief seats. They had to be in the uppermost rooms at the feasts. They wanted all the prominence. And outwardly, they were respected and they were revered. But inwardly, how were these men really? What were they really after? Oh, they looked the part. They had all these long clothing and, and uh, looked in, were all in the prominent places. But how were these men really? Well, verse number 40 says, They devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers. See, here's what these charlatans, these two-faced ministers were doing. They were fleecing and robbing widows in their affliction, pretending that their money that they gave was for the Lord, but instead it was padding their wallets and portfolio as they would add another home to their inventory. Uh, we got another widow's home. Now, what does Jesus say would happen to these Complete frauds in verse number 40. These shall receive greater damnation. The Lord says here that these fakes, these phonies, these two-faced ministers would face more severe judgment. Now, I don't know exactly what all that entails, but I know enough to know that no one should desire greater damnation. That's exactly what these scribes or those who are two-faced ministers well, this was indeed a sad state of affairs in that day. Too bad for them. Good thing we don't have any two-faced ministers in our day and age, right? Wrong. Sadly, not much has changed. See, churchianity... Now, I didn't notice I didn't say Christianity. Churchianity is littered with people who, in the name of God, fleece and rob people of their hard-earned money to pad their wallets and provide for their lavish and luxurious lifestyles. Look, I'm, I know that God does indeed take care of His servants. I'm one of His servants, and I know that God does take great care of me. But to have a private jet, a ginormous estate with a mansion... And sneakers that cost anywhere from $3,000 to $5,000 for a pair of shoes? Seriously? I'm not against pastors being well taken care of. But obviously, some of what's going on in churchianity is absolutely excessive. 
By the way, in case you're wondering, uh, Cornerstone Baptist Church does a wonderful job taking care of its pastor. And I want to say that my family and I are truly thankful for how this church does take care of our family. But it's not to the point where I'm able to afford a private jet yet. <laughs> or $3,000 pair of shoes. Like, that's not... See, it's not about the money. Serving the Lord ought not to be about the money. At least it shouldn't be. See, in the New Testament, we learn about the qualifications of the pastor and the servant of God. One of the most important things about the servant of God is that he doesn't do it for the money. In fact, it's mentioned three times in the New Testament that the pastor is not to do it for filthy lucre's sake. 1 Timothy 3, 3, Paul says to Timothy, not given to wine. This is, this is talking about a, an elder, a pastor. He, he ought not to be given to wine, not, not, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, a patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Paul repeats this qualification in his letter to Titus, chapter 1 and verse number 7. He says this, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. But then... If you would, just hold your place here in Mark 12 and turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. Because Peter also mentions this idea of a pastor ought not to be doing it for the money. Peter also mentions it in his list of qualifications and list of responsibilities for a pastor. First Peter chapter 5, verse number 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, Peter said, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And then he gets real practical to these pastors as he writes to them in this last chapter, Feed the flock of God which is among you. First priority of the pastor is to feed the flock of God. I take that very seriously. I want to make sure that I'm studying God's Word and I'm able to bring something that actually feeds you. And uh, I don't know if it's always the best meal. may not taste the best every time. You know, I may not hit a home run every time up, up, I'm up at bat. Uh, but I want to try to do my best to feed the flock of God. I take that very seriously. He goes on to say, uh, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. So a pastor is to take oversight not by constraint, though, but willingly. And then he says, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And so uh, my priorities are to feed the flock and, and to be an example to the flock. And, and we endeavor to do that. And I know I'm not a perfect example by any stretch of the imagination. But he does say here that we are to do the work willingly and not for filthy lucre. Now, why would Peter say that? I mean, yes, the Holy Spirit was guiding him, no doubt about that, but I just can't help but think, going back to, if you flip back over to Mark chapter 12, you see, the disciples were there in the temple as they were hearing the master teacher teach. I can't help but think that 
Peter was there in the temple listening to oh, this particular passage, verses 38 through 40, as Jesus goes on and says, Beware the scribes which do all these things, and they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And Peter kind of took that to heart and said, You know what? When I write my letter to pastors, I want to make sure I put in there that they ought not to do it for filthy lucre's sake. So friends, I just want to encourage you to beware of preachers on the internet and on TV who are constantly asking for money. And watch out for me too if I start doing that. Now we are getting pretty full in here. We are going to need to build a building eventually. And I am going to be asking for money for that. That's different. But if I start asking money and it starts to become obvious that I'm in it for the money, then that's when we need to have a serious conversation. And if the Lord ever moves you to another church and the pastor starts doing some shady things, you need to have a serious conversation. Because a pastor ought not to be doing that. And, and Jesus says, beware of these who do. And he gives them a tremendous warning for those who do. These shall receive greater damnation. Boy, isn't that enough to keep me honest. I don't want to receive that. So speaking of money, this leads to the third lesson of the master teacher as we make our way through this passage. The lesson on the two mites. Verse number 41, Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. Brother Scott, if you could come on up. Now notice here in verse number 41 where Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. So... Jesus was there in the temple, and he was just kind of taking a break. And you can just leave it right there. That's perfect. He was taking a break from the teaching, and he was just sitting there observing and watching how people gave, not with a critical, judgmental, that there's nothing in there that says that. He just simply was beholding how the people cast money in the treasury. So we would also understand that this morning as we gave the offering a few minutes ago, guess who was beholding how we gave? The Lord is still observing that, by the way. It wasn't just a one-time event that Jesus was there watching. I mean, physically, yes, but, but in a greater sense, He's always watching, and He does see how we give, and and the, the motive on why we give, is it so that others will see? Is it so that we can kind of check it off the list? Or are we giving with a cheerful heart, hoping to invest in things that matter for eternity? And so here's what's going on here as Jesus is sitting there watching. The Bible says, many that were rich cast in much. So as he's sitting over here watching, you can picture Jesus over here just kind of leaning back. I mean, he's had quite a day having to answer all these conspiracies and then now teaching all these lessons. And he's sitting there now just watching. And the people one by one come to the, the thing and, and, and there's like a line, you know, like an ATM machine. But this is not getting money. This is giving money. 
and they're over there and they're like getting their checkbook out. Hey, how many uh, zeros are in 10,000 again? Oh, that's right. Okay, thank you. I forgot. And they write the check and they put that in there. And they walk on. And the other guy comes in with some, some, some coins, you know, some serious coinage. So he comes in there and he's like, right, guys, this might take a while. One, two, I got, I got a whole handful here. Three, you guys all keep in track, right? Count with me if you would, okay? And so he goes on and on and he's just dumping all this change in and, and thinking that everybody's pretty impressed because he's given a bunch. And everybody's like, how long is this guy gonna take? We've got to go on here. And so he goes on and, and keeps putting it in. And, uh, you know, somebody else brings in some paper money and, and starts putting it in there and, and like, hey, I've got them all in ones. I'm sorry. It's going to take a while and just puts them in there. And everybody's, everybody's seeing what everybody's doing here. It's very public. And, of course, not only is everybody else seeing it, but the Lord is seeing it as well. Okay. And then, of course, most of us are very familiar with this passage, right? Uh, most of us who've been saved for any length of time have heard multiple sermons on this particular passage. So this is no earth-shattering information here, but verse 42 says, There came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And so here comes this little old lady, you know, and uh, I, I, it's probably short, Really, when I think of an older lady, I, I don't think of a tall, taller older lady for some reason. But that's just me. And she comes in, and I don't even know if I have, here's a penny. I've got some quarters here. See if I can find another penny. May have already given them. Okay, there we go. Got my two pennies here. She comes in there and, 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 and moving real slow. I do a pretty good old lady, don't I? <laughs> Thank you. And she comes in here and... And she walks away. And everybody else is like, seriously? Two mites? That's it? That's, that's unfortunate that that's all she could give. Now, two mites uh, were equal to a farthing. That's what Mark says here. She threw in two mites, which make a farthing. The mite is also known as a lepton, which was a Jewish coin and the smallest used in New Testament time. At the time of Mark's writing, it was worth one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage for a common worker. So I have a picture of the mites here. Um, we have the head side of a mite on the left and a tail side on the right. That's what a mite looked like uh, back in those days. And that particular photo was taken um, uh, sometime before even Christ was born. So this was very, probably very similar to what the, the little lady put in the offering box that day. Well, okay, so let's, let's bring this story to today's economy. And I did the math, okay? So the average salary here in Moore, Oklahoma is a little under $68,000 a year. And if you divide that 68000 by 313, that's six working days a week, which is what they did back in those days. You know, this four-day work week. No, it was six days back in those days. And you get six, $216 per day. 
Okay, a hundred, a one sixty-fourth of that number is around three dollars and forty cents. Okay, and I know some Bible commentaries will say that this was like an eighth of a cent these mites were worth, but if we're just kind of bringing it into today's economy, this would be what it would be equivalent to. So this lady puts in two mites, which would be equivalent to six dollars and eighty cents in our day and age, in the offering box. Wow. I mean, not a big deal. It's not like it's going to boost our budget. Like, okay, now we can afford that building. We got $6.80. Praise the Lord. No. I mean, would six eighty be a big boost to our budget? Not really. But see, that's not really the point. It's not really the point. You see, everyone else gave out of their abundance, but this lady truly sacrificed. Everyone else had lots of money left over after they gave, but not this lady. And although she, what she gave was small, it was much more than what everyone else gave. She literally gave it all, verse 44, for all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. 680. I mean, you say, well, I thought like 680, that's, that's, not, that's not a lot of money. You can, buy, you can buy a Starbucks or a five bucks. I, I don't know what it's called anymore. Uh, you, you can buy a, a cup of coffee for that, uh, maybe a large cup of coffee. Um, you can buy uh, an inexpensive value meal at McDonald's for 680. You can't buy much anymore. You can buy maybe two plus gallons of gas now. You can't buy much. That's all she had, and she gave it. Now, most of us applaud the widow woman here in this passage, don't we? We applaud her for giving. We, we admire her. We're inspired by her sacrifice. But how many of us follow her example and are willing to literally give everything? I'm not saying, like, let's take another offering and now let's see who gives everything. I'm not saying everybody needs to empty their bank accounts out. But here's the deal. I believe all of us should be willing to give it all. Because, you see, the Lord... How much did he give us? See, God's not asking us to do something that he wasn't first willing to do himself. And he gave literally everything on the cross of Calvary when Jesus died there. He gave everything for us. He didn't own anything. I mean, the only thing he owned when he died on the cross were the clothes that he wore on his back. And even those were gambled away. He had nothing. All he had was his life, and yet he laid that down for you and for me. Okay, well, I give him Sunday morning. Well, congratulations. Let's give you a medal. See, this widow woman, she didn't have much, but she gave more than everybody else. She gave it all. I read a quote this week that applies here. When It's from uh, 
Randy Alcorn wrote this in his book, The Treasure Principle. He said, I, uh, or when Jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not just because wealth might be lost, because wealth will always be lost. Either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die, no exceptions. So for those who are trying to accumulate great wealth, remember that it's going to always be lost. So I have here in my pocket some keys. And these keys represent some things. I have this big key fob that represents, uh, this is a key to my minivan. Yes, when I was a teenager, I thought I would never own a minivan. I vowed to my best friend, we, I'm never going to own a minivan. I'm not going to be one of those dads. Okay, I have a minivan. But praise the Lord, I also have a truck. Amen. <laughs> um, but these, these represent not just possessions, but really freedom, the, the ability to go anywhere I want to go. And I'm thankful for that freedom. I have this key here, this kind of red key. This is, it's, it was an OU key. I went to Walmart and got an OU version of the key. Amen. Okay, I thought this was more of an OU uh, church than I thought. Okay, um, uh, anyway, so this represents the church key. This is the church key. This is what gets me in this building. And this represents my ministry. This represents my calling, my, really my way to make a living. And uh, this is important to me. And then I have here this key right here. And this key is my house key. And this, of course, gets me into my house, but it also represents my possessions, but also my family. Now, all of us are holding this. Now, the difference is how we're holding this. Are we holding our keys, the keys to our life, so to speak, are we holding it like this? Please, Lord, don't take anything from me. I've got to have it all. Okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you like these little keys over here. But the rest are mine. Don't touch those. Or are we holding these things like the widow did and said, Lord, they're all at your disposal. You did everything for me. It all belongs to you anyway. And so, Lord, however you want to use and take these things, yeah, they're yours anyway. I'll steward them while I'm holding them, but if you want to take one, go ahead. If you want to take my family, go ahead. Happened to, Jew, to Job. Did he get all bitter and upset at God? No, he never, he never cursed the Lord. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord, even after he, his children were taken from him. Because he was holding his possessions like this. Instead of like, I've got to have these. Don't you touch them, Lord. So what kind of Christian are you? Oh, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give chump change because I still have a bunch left over. I still have a bunch in my hand. Or are we willing to say, Lord, here you go. If you, however you want to use it, it's yours. I, I give it to you. I mean, I, 
like having my family around. I like the house that I'm in. I don't really necessarily want it to be destroyed in a tornado. But if that's what you want, I love my ministry. I love what I do. I love preaching. I love all these things. But if you decide to take it away from you, I'm still going to follow you and love you. You take away my health and my freedom to go around and out and about and do whatever I want to do. So be it. It's yours. You can have it. Are we going to be like those who were rich and cast in much for the show? So the people are impressed with how much we gave. Which one are we going to be? A couple stories and we'll wrap this up. I've mentioned uh, a man by the name of C.T. Studd many times, but I kind of want to share a little more of the story with you regarding him and his wife. C.T. Studd, the famous, he was a famous English cricketer. In other words, he played cricket, and he was good at it. In fact, so good that he was a member of the English 11 cricket team. And he began to earn a lot of money, and he came from a very wealthy home as well. And, and uh, he ended up, though, giving away his vast wealth and became a missionary uh, over a century ago. Well, in China, Stud married an Irish missionary named Priscilla Stewart, who he simply called Scylla. She had surrendered to missionary work after her conversion, but before she was born again, Scylla was a party girl. And she said, I am a missionary now but I was not made that way. Had you asked me to come to a meeting when I was a girl, I would have said, no, thank you. None of your religion for me, for my idea of a person loving God was to have a face as long as a coffee pot, she said. Before their engagement, C.T. wrote to his mother as follows. She ain't very big. (laughs) That's an interesting thing to write to your mom about your... um, your girlfriend, she ain't very big, and as her and and as regards her face, well, she has the beauty of the Lord her God upon her, which is worth more than all the beauty of the whole world. She can also play the harmonium or organ and sing a bit. She doesn't fear the face of man or woman a little bit, I do believe, but just fires away at everybody she meets about their souls. Scylla was a Salvation Army who, uh, Lassie who participated in street evangelism. Later, C.T. said, I did not marry her for her pretty face. I married her for her handsome actions towards the Lord Jesus Christ and those he sent her to save. In fact, until this day, I verily believe that of all of God's many good gifts, the least of all is good looks. I mean, it's, I would say, C.T., I, I do appreciate good looks. Uh, as well, and I got one that has uh, both handsome actions towards the Lord and good looks as well. But before they were married, C.T. gave Scylla 3,400 British pounds he had kept back from his inheritance. He kept this because of God's word, which says, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And so he wanted to give this to her before they got married. But she decided to give even that away. She, not to be outdone, said, Charlie, what did the Lord tell the rich young man to do? Sell all. Well, then, we will start clean with the Lord at our wedding, she said. She gave the money to the Salvation Army. In her letter to General Booth, she said, Henceforth, 
Like from now on, our bank is in heaven. You see, we are rather afraid. Or we, you see, we are rather afraid, notwithstanding the great earthly safety of uh, measures, counts, and company in the Bank of England. We are, I say, rather afraid that they mo- may both break on the judgment day. And of course, as they started out their young married life, uh, really broke. Um, but the Lord did take care of them throughout their lives. And here's an example. Here's what uh, C.T. wrote. He said, My own family knew nothing of our circumstances, only that we were in the heart of China as missionaries. And the last of our supplies was finished, and there was no apparent hope of supplies of any kind coming from any human source. The mail came once a fortnight. By the way, that's not just a video game. It's every two weeks is what that means. And uh, he said, the, the mail only came every 14 days. And the mailman had just set out that afternoon, and in in 14 days, he would bring the return mail. And the children were put to bed. Then my wife came to my room. We had looked facts in the face. If the return of the postman brought no relief, starvation then stared us in the face. So we got on our knees for that purpose. I think we must have stayed there 20 minutes before we rose again. Our hearts were relieved. It did not seem to us either reverence or common sense to keep on talking to God as though he were deaf or could not understand our simple language or the extremity of our circumstances. Well, the mailman returned at the appointed time. Now came another letter. I looked at the signature first, one wholly unknown to me. And here's what the letter said. I have, for some reason or other, received the command of God to send you a check for 100 pounds. I have never met you. I have only heard of you. And that, not, and that not often, but God has prevented me from sleeping tonight by this command. So God impressed upon them to send that money. See, God took care of them. They were willing to give all. Oh, well, they went broke. No, they had the promises of God and the provision of God to keep them going. One more story, and then I will be done. This man's name was Judson Van Deventer. And he was raised on a farm near Dundee, Michigan. After graduating from Hillsdale College, he taught art in public schools in Sharon, Pennsylvania. Van Deventer was active as a layman in his church, including participation in revivals held at the church there. And based on his fervent faith and, and faithful service, friends really encouraged him to leave his field of teaching and become an evangelist. It took five years for him to finally surrender all. And follow the advice of his friends. And so then he became an evangelist. While he was conducting a meeting in East Palestine, Ohio, Brother Judson wrote a song. Now here's what he said about this writing of this song. He said, For some time I had struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last, the pivotal hour of my life came and I surrendered all. A new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered down deep in my soul a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart, and touching a tender chord, he caused me to sing. What were the words to the song that he wrote during that evangelistic meeting in that little town on the east side of Ohio? All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. 
All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Judson went on to write over 100 hymns and gospel songs. His ministry then took him to various places in the United States, England, and Scotland. See, he was willing to surrender all. <coughs> and as a result, God was able to use him and is actually still using him through his music that we still sing today. In fact, in a moment, we're going to sing that song, I Surrender All as a Church Family. But before we do, let's be reminded of what the master teacher taught in this passage. He taught regarding the truth about the Messiah, who Jesus really was. He was fully human and he was fully man, or fully God as well. And then he taught a lesson about these two face ministers. But then he taught a lesson about the two mites, and that we should indeed surrender all. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the time together on this Teacher Appreciation Sunday, Lord, to look at the Master Teacher, and to look at three powerful, important lessons for all of us to learn. The truth of who you are. The truth of uh, the fact that there are ministers out there with wrong motives. And Lord, I, I pray, Lord, you'd help me to maintain pure motives in everything that I do. Lord, I know that that particular point is more for me than it is for anybody else in the room, but God, I pray that you'd help me to maintain my pure motives, to not do anything for, for money, but to do everything for my master, to please you, and trusting you that you're going to take care of me. And Lord, help us all to learn the lesson from uh, these, this widow woman, Lord, who gave everything. It was just $6.80 worth in our day and age. Lord, it was everything she had. Help us, Lord, to surrender all too. To hold whatever you've put into our hands, not with a tight grip, but with outstretched hand, saying, Lord, it's yours anyway. You gave it to us. You gave it to me. Lord, you use it however you see fit. Help us, Lord, to surrender all. 